If you've been struggling with your weight, with your energy, with your cognitive function, and feel like your sleep may have something to do with it, then this episode of the Smart Nutrition Made Simple Show is for you. Welcome to the Smart Nutrition Made Simple Show, where each week you will hear the real-world experiences, life lessons, and guided principles that every highly driven man needs to master, their health, productivity, and relationships by sharing conversations with the world's most successful people in fitness, nutrition, supplementation, and mindset. Meet your host, Benjamin Brown. He is a fitness and nutrition expert, consultant to Fortune 500 companies and world championship sports teams, a husband and father of three, and has been helping men transform their physiques, optimize their energy, and own their fatherly mission since 2005. Thank you for joining us today, and without further ado, let's jump right in. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome to episode number 65 of the Smart Nutrition Made Simple Show. Today on the show, we talk all things sleep with Dr. Court Vreeland. Dr. Vreeland is a chiropractic functional neurologist with a private practice in Vermont. He's a nationally recognized speaker and author and also an expert in functional medicine. He's worked closely with Biotics Research Corporation to co-develop a line of supplements designed to target neurologic health. Additionally, Dr. Vreeland holds a Master's of Science in Human Nutrition from the University of Bridgeport. He also received advanced training in clinical biochemistry, nutritional biochemistry, clinical nutrition, rehabilitation of balance disorders, and uh, specializes in learning disorders revolving around ADHD, to name a few. This dude is the man for brain health. And you're going to hear that in this episode when we talk again about the importance of sleep, specifically in understanding the sleep cycle, what happens when we don't get enough sleep, and then what strategies we can employ to improve our sleep hygiene, specifically around nutrition, exercise, lifestyle, and supplementation. If you are struggling with your sleep, if you want to learn how to optimize your sleep and you're wondering where to start, then this episode with Dr. Vreeland is for you. Hope you guys enjoy. Dr. Vreeland, thanks so much for coming on the Smart Nutrition Made Simple Show. How you doing, buddy? Good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. I heard you speak last year, uh, just over a year ago at a Charles Poliquin event here in Scottsdale, Arizona, and I was absolutely blown away by the amount of information that you provided on the uh, you know, the depth of sleep and all of the influences on sleep and why it's so important on the body's in, you know, in the body. And so despite the fact that this is a nutrition based show, we understand the importance of sleep on health, overall health and weight loss. And so it only seemed appropriate for me to get you in on the show. So thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. Sleep is one of those things that, um, you know, a lot of people don't get enough of, a lot of people aren't getting that, at least that seven hour mark. And um, it's extremely important uh, in all facets. I mean, if you pick a disorder or a disease, uh, there's not one that short sleep duration does not affect. So it's extremely important. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I almost feel like sleep is the elephant in the room when it comes to health and fitness. Uh, because we're all we're, we're so focused on what's the best nutritional protocol, what supplements should we be utilizing, what sort of exercise regimen should we be utilizing, and in my opinion, if we're not first focusing on sleep quality and duration, then it's almost a moot point to yeah. you know worry about any of the other stuff. Yeah, it has such a negative effect when you don't get sleep, and it's really interesting. Is as important as sleep is for uh, everything 
it's still relatively poorly understood exactly why do we do it? Why do we need it? I mean, the basics, it sounds very simple on the surface. You know, we need to sleep so we can rest and repair and do all of those things. But then there are organisms that don't sleep and, and why don't they need sleep? But why do we need such levels of sleep? And, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, sleep is kind of a dangerous thing. You know, you're spending you know, eight hours not aware of your surroundings. And so it must provide some exceptional benefit if it's been preserved. Uh, and most animals, obviously it has been, and especially in human beings. Uh, but I think we take it for granted. I think we, we, we chip away at our sleep to get more done during the day and mm -hmm. it's really diminishing returns. You know, people say, well, if I can just, you know, cut that down, if I, I can get away with six and I feel okay you might feel okay, but you're, you're kind of burning the candle at both ends and uh, you run into, you could potentially run into some serious issues. Yeah. And eventually it's going to catch up and, and bite you in the butt. And that's what we're seeing that over and over again, anecdotally, but we're also seeing it with the research now suggesting yeah. that the significance of even just one night of, of poor sleep and how it affects our health with respect to blood sugar levels and, and hunger and cravings and satiety and weight gain and all of those types of things. So we're going to, we're going to dive into that real quickly. Um, would you mind sharing with our listeners just a, a brief background of how you got into all of this, uh, all of sure. this health related stuff? Absolutely. You know, um, <clears throat> my, uh, father was a, a functional medicine guy and, um, <clears throat> I really wasn't interested in it too much as a kid. And then I took a, a, a biology course in, in uh, high school that I thought is all about the human body. I thought, this is really fascinating. And I decided that I didn't want to go into traditional medicine. I, you know, my, my dad was a chiropractor and did lots of functional medicine. So I decided I wanted to go that route. And so I moved that direction. And <clears throat> once I, I uh, kind of completed my uh, doctor of chiropractic, I also went through and did some neurology training. So I have a diplomate in clinical neuroscience. And so my, my practice is very much a blend of functional medicine and functional neurology. And the functional medicine piece is the laboratory testing and the nutrition and, mm -hmm. you know, the supplementation. But the, the functional neurology side of things we use, we see patients with chronic neurologic conditions, things like Parkinson's disease or MS, or uh, maybe they've had a stroke or maybe they just, they just had a TBI, either mild or, or severe. And we use the principles of neuroplasticity to, to rehabilitate that. And part of that is, uh, is obviously going to be sleep. Um, I've also pursued, uh, I got a, a master's degree in, in human nutrition. So we blend all of that together, the manual therapy, the functional medicine, the functional neurology, the nutrition, we put it all together in one place and we help people, um, you know, without drugs and surgery. And it's a, uh, I think that's the best way to go. Obviously when those things are needed, they're needed, but uh, I think there's a lot of cases that, uh, you know, you just don't need those. You got a degree from University of Bridgeport, correct? Yep. Mm -hmm. When when were you there? See, I did the online program. Uh, let's right. see, I finished that two two years ago. I think I believe that's true. Okay. Uh, I started. Let's see, I started it when my like I started it. Uh, silly timing. My daughter was born in January, my first child, and then I started it in February. So I guess it's actually been me. Four years I finished. It was a silly I, time to try to do it, but I did it. I, I did the exact same thing and it was the worst idea. I mean, obviously I'm glad I, I got it, but I, I got the online degree from uh, University of Bridgeport in clinical nutrition as well. And yeah. I did it. It took me basically like 2010 until I think I finally finished in 2015 mm -hmm. and there were two kids in between. Yep. So I, I, I'm with you hundred percent, but it's <laughs> a great, it was a great program. And it was, yeah. Now, I'm absolutely fascinated with the sleep-brain connection, and obviously that's your expertise. 
expertise. And, mm-hmm. and, and so while sort of the implications of sleep are, are relatively unknown in terms of why we need, why we need what we need in terms of sleep, like we know why we need it, but why we need the duration that we need and, and all the complexities of it are somewhat, you know, relatively unknown. Something that you talked about in your lecture last year was, you know, with respect to the brain chemistry was the synaptic plasticity and pruning that occurs throughout the day and at night. Would you mind talking just kind of a o- overview of, of that concept? Sure. So plasticity, you know, is just the way that our brains adapt to changes in our environment, right? So it, 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 if you're learning a new skill, you're building new connections. Uh, and uh, sometimes we build too many connections, um, you know, and at night, we need a, uh, we have to have the ability to uh, make those connections as efficient as possible. And so as we're going about our day and we're learning new things and we're, we're creating new connections and the brain is trying to make uh, itself as efficient as possible, um, we take some un- unnecessary steps during the day. So at night, the, the theory is, is that we use that time to prune back some of that unnecessary stuff because the brain is already so demanding in terms of energy. We can't really afford to have unnecessary things there. It's, it's really everybody said it, you know, it's the use it or lose it principle. Um, and so we have to make sure that we have this process where we can cut back on the things that we're not using and really solidify that synaptic plasticity. And then w- when we look at the studies, we find out that people who sleep uh, the appropriate amounts uh, are better at consolidating memories. They are better at learning. They are better at being able to take a skill and master it because the brain is is doing what it's supposed to do in terms of efficiency. Uh, people who don't sleep, they may be able to do uh, and learn those skills, but it takes longer. Uh, maybe they're not as efficient at it when they do it. Uh, so it's really important that we have this downtime so the brain can kind of rest and repair. Mm, that's fascinating. It's it's sort of this this process where we really reinforce the important you know, things that we learn during the day. It reminds me of when I was in college, I, and I don't, this could completely be the wrong context, but when I was in college, I used to, and I know this is not the right way to do it, but I used to cram kind of right the night before an exam and you try and pack as much information as possible into your brain. So you wake up in the morning and it's like, blah, just vomited all over the paper. Yeah. Try to hold <laughs> no. on to it as long as possible, right? right? <laughs> and it didn't work too well in, in many instances, but that's what I, that's the, what I think about when I think about that, yeah, uh, absolutely. that reinforcement phase. Now, something else that I thought was so fascinating uh, with respect to the brain and sleep was uh, the connection between the eyes and the brain and light and the brain and how it inf- influ- uh, influences our sleep. And I believe the term that you said was suprachiasmatic nucleus is this mm-hmm. connection in the brain. Could you talk about that? Yeah. So that's in the hypothalamus and um, you know, the effect of light on the human brain, this connection between our retina and our circadian rhythms is very powerful. Um, human beings it, uh, live on a 24 hour cycle. Um, evolutionarily speaking, uh, we have the waking aspect of that cycle during the light when it's when when the sun is up um, and we tend to sleep at night there are of course animals that the reverse is true because from an evolutionary standpoint it's more advantageous for them to be up and about at night mm-hmm. when there's less predators and that sort of thing for human beings that means light is a very powerful cue to shift that circadian rhythm around it will always be 24 hours 
um, but it can shift that circadian rhythm around. And they've done these studies where they put people in in rooms in which there's no change in light. Um, it's the same all the time. It's for 24 hours a day. They still, their, their hormones still operate on a 24 hour cycle. That doesn't change. But when they sleep, changes. They sleep when they get tired. Um, they are awake when, they're, when they feel like they've had enough sleep. But that 24 hour cycle maintains. But as soon as you start introducing light, automatically we start to shift back to a, 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 a cycle which we will be awake at uh, during the day and, uh, and at, at night we will try to sleep. And so that's why things like shift work can be so problematic for, for human beings because you're going against millions of years of evolution and you're trying to be awake at night, you're trying to be asleep during the day and that just doesn't work and the effect of light is very powerful. So when we talk about things like sleep hygiene, one of the things that we are concerned about is the ambient level of light that's in someone's room when they're trying to sleep. Because light is such a powerful stim, um, light is one of those things that you have to be careful of. And we're not talking about exclusively light from the environment. We're talking about light from devices, which we are all guilty of using. And so light from a television, light from an iPad, light from your phone, all of those things um, can be problematic. I recently got a new phone and it has this, uh, you know, has wireless charging and I, yeah. you know, I'm looking at the wireless charger in the store. I'm in Best Buy and I'm talking to the salesperson. I said, how bright is that light on that, you know, wireless charger? She said, oh, it's, it's a very, very dull LED. You know, it's, it's not going to bother you. It's, it's, and you know, first night I put my phone down on and that thing, it's like the sunshine in my yeah. room. And, you know, so I had to put a piece of electrical tape over it because for me, I'm very sensitive to it yes. and I know what it's going to do. It's going to, even if you're not aware that it's affecting you, it is affecting you. Yes, 100%. So those lights are so significant. And in my experience, the more you start to phase them out, uh, almost the more sensitive you become or realize that you actually are. So I guess the more you use them, the more desensitized you become right, yep. to those lights to the degree that I'm, I'm such a, a stickler about having a, a blackout room and my wife is adamant about having this alarm clock mm -hmm. you know, at the other end of the room, but even just the light from the alarm clock. So I'll put a piece of uh, athletic tape over or two pieces of athletic tape and we just have this constant battle going back yeah. and forth. But it, but there's there's research studies to suggest that even just a small amount of light on the skin is enough to stimulate our hormones to the degree that our body right starts to produce daytime hormones like yeah. cortisol it's, it's it's right yeah we 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 are that sensitive to light and so even little bits um are problem are problematic because you have to remember how we evolved you know the most amount of light that we would have been exposed to would have been something like a fire you know which is uh, very low level, um, the, the reds and the oranges and the yellows that come from a fire are not as particularly problematic as the, the blues and the violets that come from devices or televisions or right. street lights um, that can get in. Um, so from an evolutionary perspective, we're just not supposed to have that kind of light at night. And um, the light has, you know, was one of those evolutionary pressures that we responded to. And unfortunately, we still are sensitive to it. So what's an ideal sleep schedule? Is it, are we clear in the research of kind of what an ideal sleep schedule should look like? Yeah, I don't think the research has been 
has, has said that this is the ideal schedule. You know, you need to sleep from 10 to six or, or whatever. Um, I, there's probably a, a window there, right? Sometimes some people go to bed at eight, they get a little up or a little earlier. Yeah. Um, you know, I tend to try to do I, myself. I, I know this is impossible for everybody. I try to go um, as closely as I can with the, with light um, and keep yeah. things in the evenings and, you know, not blast myself out of my house. Obviously I'm not going to bed at 445 here in Vermont in the winter uh, right. as it becomes dark. Um, I'm not getting up, you know, at uh, 715 when it gets light, but um, you know, you try to go as best you can with that. And then, adjust your environment so that, um, you know, the light isn't coming in first thing in the morning and you're not blasting yourself with some of the other types of lights like the LEDs, um, you know, right before bed. Yeah. So as, as close as possible, I mean, obviously if the sun's down, it's, it's time to go to sleep. When the yeah. sun's coming up, it's time to wake up and somewhere within that's going to be our sort of optimal sleep cycle. Now within that sleep cycle, what are some of the important uh, things that occur and, and are there specific times that they occur within that? Yeah, they, um, they will have, there are things that occur, you know, so we slip in and out of, uh, of REM sleep. Um, so there's non-REM sleep that generally what happens is you slip into uh, starting a non-REM phase. And then as you work through these different um, stages of sleep, you st start with stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four, and then you back yourself through, this is all non-REM sleep. You mm -hmm. go back through three, two, one, and then you end up in that REM sleep place. And then throughout the night, you cycle through that back and forth, back and forth. Um, those cycles last anywhere from 90 to 110 minutes, depending on the person, depending on if you've been interrupted by a small child, like I yeah, was right. like a million times and any kind of uh, interruption will change that. Uh, but generally you're going to see four to six cycles of those per night in order to have an efficient night's sleep. And the research on maybe not, it's not clear on optimally when we should be sleeping, but we know we should be getting at least seven hours, seven hours, or less is defined as, as uh, short sleep duration. And so even for people that feel like, you know, they, those, there's those people, of course, that say, you know, I only need four or five hours of sleep and I yeah. can function great. Are they just, you know, potentially outliers? I mean, or. Yeah. I mean, I, there could be outliers. There's always that one unicorn, right? But yeah. um, there, the vast majority of people are going to need uh, enough sleep. And, and there's a difference. Some people might get away with it, but I think it's a very small percentage of people. I think the other percentage of people that do that, um, I think they've just gotten used to functioning on low sleep. And they yeah. may do other things during their day to keep that, you know, that we don't know about to keep themselves awake. They're drinking coffee all day long or, you know, they're using, you know, some other type of stimulant to be awake. Um, we don't really know that in, um, for them necessarily in every case. But uh, it's one of those things that uh, I think most people just get used to that rather than, than they actually do okay with it. Yeah, I agree. And, and they get so far down the rabbit hole of not getting enough sleep that when they maybe do start to get more sleep, sometimes they feel like, no, nah, if I sleep more, I get more groggy. And it's sort of this game yep. of where they're constantly playing catch up mm -hmm. uh, to the point where they're not allowing themselves to get enough. Yeah, sleep is, is an interesting thing. The, the research says that sleep deficit is something that has to be paid back hour for hour, mm. um, which... That's what it says. Um, I, I find that hard to believe because there are some people I think that would never, ever catch up. Ever. 
ever, <laughs> you know? And I kind of think about it like, you know, from a weight loss perspective too, I, it's just not as simple as, although the calories matter, it, it matter, it can't be calorie in, calorie out exclusively. Yes. Because some people would literally never catch up, you know? And, and, and that's a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting phenomenon. Well, I'm glad you brought up calories. So let's talk about the implications of poor sleep on health, on weight loss, on, yeah. you know, people's nutrition decisions. What, what are we seeing in the literature? Yeah, an interesting connection is that, you know, people who get short sleep duration are at greater risk for being overweight or obese. Um, it's, uh, very simple. Um, it's interesting because you would think that if we were talking about purely about energy expenditure, if you're not sleeping as much, you'd think that these energy expenditure would be greater because you're not resting as much. Uh, but that doesn't seem to add up. Um, it creates a hormonal change, which is just not conducive to, um, you know, a catabolic state. It's, it's more conducive to just gaining and holding on to it. One of the factors is leptin. Um, leptin is, um, it's, it's relationship, relationship to sleep is, is complex. Um, leptin, a hormone that was, you know, was discovered only in 1994. So it's relatively new to the scene, mm -hmm. generally looked at as uh, for controlling appetite and energy expenditure. There's a few other um, functions that we know it has now, but there's this interesting connection between obesity and leptin and what it does. Um, but if you're overweight, you're more likely to experience something like obstructive sleep apnea. And if you get obstructive sleep apnea, you end up with short sleep duration that actually in the short term, uh, decreases leptin, but increases ghrelin. And then what you end up with is increased energy intake because you're hungrier, which leads yes. back to obesity. The, the issue is that all that obstructive sleep apnea also creates hypoxia. Uh, it, it creates changes in metabolism, um, it, and that creates increased leptin. All right. in all, the shift is probably to is to drive up leptin levels and create a state of leptin resistance, right. um, where now you're just not listening to your hormones at all. You're hungry all the time. You don't get that signal. You know, you have that you know uh, eight or nine hundred calorie meal from McDonald's, and you're hungry three hours later. You know, um, it's a very interesting cycle. You know, what I, what I hear you saying, what I think is most important to pull out of this is the reality that despite our best intentions, if we're not sleeping, then it, it leads to this vicious cascade of cravings, hunger, right? We crave more carbohydrate. We crave more salty, processed, more uh, seemingly satiating foods, um, more refined foods that are going to be dense sources of energy because that's what our body's telling us. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we're becoming more resistant to utilizing those sugars effectively. And obviously it's leading us down this, this roller coaster of, of disease. Absolutely. You become leptin resistant, you become insulin resistant and, uh, and all of the things, then you, you're, then you're into to metabolic syndrome and then eventually into diabetes and all the while the, this inflammatory pool is cooking and right. you know, you don't know what's happening because it's, it's not something that produces overt symptoms. Um, but it's, uh, it's measurable. And then we're into the chronic disease cascade. We're into increased risk for heart disease, increased risk for cancer, increased risk for Alzheimer's disease, increased risk for diabetes, and all these things go up. And it's, it is, it's a vicious cycle because you start, you, you know, your body starts, you start putting in the, you know, the high calorie nutrient light food 
and yes. you can't you can't get out of that cycle until you know maybe it's too late hey brother are you struggling to find the energy to function at your best as a businessman father and husband i want you to know you're not alone and sadly the conventional wisdom these days around healthy eating and exercise that has saturated the mainstream is flat out wrong if you want to find the solution to optimizing your energy and body composition without restrictive dieting, soul-crushing workouts, or adding more to your already stressful and overflowing schedule so that you can finally function like the man you know you can be, then we need to chat. Are you ready to move from exhausted to energized by working smarter, not harder? Go ahead and schedule your free strategy call at www bslnutrition.com forward slash level up. I'm looking forward to our conversation and enjoy the rest of the show. And so if we wind that back and say, let's forget about nutrition and exercise for a second and say, let's focus on fixing sleep. And obviously the two go hand in hand, but let's focus on, on fixing sleep by simply improving your sleep hygiene, which is the word you said earlier, that alone could help then with, you know, building the foundation of the nutrition decisions that you make, the cognitive function that you have throughout the day, potentially improving mo motivation and willpower and, and, and thereby leading to better decisions consistently, uh, you know, so that you can start to, to wind that back. Yeah, and sleep hygiene is one of those things. That's the place you start, right? I mean, it's it's the basics. You want to do all the things that you can to make your environment as inviting and as optimal as possible for sleep. And then if you need other things in terms of nutritional interventions to change neurochemistry, you can get to those things. But, you know, the sleep hygiene is really important. And, you know, we've touched on some of it. You know, you want to keep a very dark room. Mm -hmm. You want it to be very as quiet as it can be. Sometimes white noise can help. Um, as well. Um, you want a very cool room. Uh, warm rooms are hard to sleep in. You want to be as hydrated as you can be. You want to avoid alcohol. Alcohol will put you to sleep very quickly, but there's a rebound, which it will wake you up and keep you awake. Um, and is that, I'm sorry, is that a blood sugar response? Actually, you know, there's not, there's nobody's really exactly sure what happens. The, the thought is, is that alcohol facilitates GABA, which we know that it does. It mm -hmm. drives inhibitory action in the brain. Um, and because you're driving inhibitory action, when you start to, um, when the alcohol starts to wear off, the brain says, okay, we've been, we've created all of this inhibitory action. We've got to stimulate. We've got to come up with, we've okay. got to balance that out with some production of, of excitatory neurotransmitters, particularly glutamate. And so your brain kind of comes awake. I do think, though, I do think there's a blood sugar component uh, because, you know, if you see if the blood sugar starts to dip, the brain's going to start to make cortisol and that's going to create, you know, you're going to wake up and uh, that's going to create some arousal. You'll probably produce some adrenaline as well, which is arousing. So there's yeah. probably more to it than, than, than just the effect of the excitatory neurotransmitters. But that's the major theory. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm so, fascinated. I mean, and then the other sleep hygiene things are like avoid nicotine, avoid caffeine. Um, napping is one of those things that um, gets some, sometimes thrown in there um, as something you need to avoid. The research doesn't show that everybody has to do that. But if, if I have a patient that's stubborn and, and I can't get them to sleep, I'm going to tell them, look, you just can't nap during the day. 
Um, you know, we just can't uh, change the sleep cycle that much, um, but it's mixed. The, the research on that is mixed. Regular sleep timing is another one of those things that um, is recommended by most uh, sleep experts, although the research doesn't back up that you have to do that. Um, it's mixed on that again. Um, a relaxing bedtime routine is something that's good, whether people want to meditate or they want to take a warm bath or something to relax, something where that's, you know, you're not work, 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 working right up to, uh, you know, 10 o'clock and your brain's all fired up and now you're trying to go to sleep. Um, yeah. That's a difficult thing. And then, you know, there's always an important, no devices in bed. So no phones, no computers, no TVs. A lot of people have TVs in the room. You got to get the TV out of the room. That's a tough one for people because it really is. I, I put the TV on and I fall asleep to it. That might be the case. You might fall asleep to it, but all of that stimulation is not helpful later in the night. It's like saying, well, I, I, I drink my, you know, I have three glasses of wine and it puts me to sleep. Right. Yep, it does, but it, it wakes you up later. And that's, that's the problem. And then yeah. lastly, exercise is a big one. Um, if, yeah, let's talk about exercise. I have a couple questions I want to come back to sure. regarding uh, a couple components of nutrition, but let's talk exercise and then let's talk a quick supplementation. So tell me what we're seeing with exercise as it relates to sleep hygiene. So exercise um, does improve sleep. Um, it has been shown to be very effective. <laughs> exercise is one of those things that works for everything. So everybody totally. should just getting out and moving. That's, that's the bottom line. Um, research has not necessarily said that if you were going to, um, you know, you say you want to go to bed at 10 o'clock, maybe you don't start your exercise routine at eight. I mean, when you do the controlled studies, people seem to be okay. In my practice, if somebody's going to exercise, I, I want it to be sometime during the day. Mm -hmm. um, and exercise just affects so many factors. I mean, it has such a stabilizing effect on neurotransmission. It reduces inflammation, which is uh, one of those things that can interrupt sleep. Um, it's great at regulating uh, a lot of the hormones that can be involved with sleep in terms of cortisol, in terms of adrenaline, in terms of norepinephrine and dopamine. Um, so the effect of exercise is wide reaching. And it is, yeah. it's one of those things that um, I think it's, it's maybe the greatest tool that everybody has at their, at their discretion to be able to use. And I'd say it's the tool that the least number of people actually implement and use regularly. And, and is that, so is there a specific type of exercise or is it fair to say, look, man, just get out and move, just walk, get out, and move. get that 10,000 steps a day or 8,000 to start with or 5,000 and just move. Yeah, I'm unaware of any research that says this type of exercise is better than this. And I yeah. think that's the case for most conditions when you study them. It seems like moving is best. I mean, if I had to pick what is best for overall health long term, I'd say probably a mix of strength training and cardiovascular work. Um, yeah. But if we're talking specifically about one condition, people getting out and moving is just, just that's just important. They got to get out and move. Yeah, you don't ever have someone say, oh, I just went for a walk and I feel like crap now. Right. <laughs> and I feel worse because I just went and moved. It's, yeah, yeah. It, doesn't, it doesn't happen. No. Um, yeah, that's great. And let, let's jump real quick back into, because you were talking about, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole here, but you're talking about excitatory neurotransmitters. And so mm -hmm. um, what, and I guess just based on your experience with um, neurology, I'm, I'm curious about diet sodas and mm -hmm. speaking of excitatory neurotransmitters and potentially the aspartame, what, what have you seen clinically with, with relationship to those? 
Yeah, it creates, um, you know, aspartame creates an excitatory state in the brain. Um, it is broken down into some components that um, not only is aspartame itself problematic, but when it's broken down, um, it provides ample fuel source, uh, an ample fuel source aspartate that you can um, use to make an excitatory neurotransmitter called glutamate. So it has this excitation to it. And the problem with diet sodas is that you, you have ample amounts of, of, of aspartate available to make this excitatory neurotransmitter. A lot of times people are also consuming too much sugar. So they've taken the diet soda, you know, and, and replaced the regular soda. And that's a good step. But sometimes their diet is still heavy in sugar. And the combination of those two things is, is an absolute disaster for being able to manage the excitatory potential in your brain. It just triggers excitotoxicity where we're kind of trying to walk this fine line of having enough stimulation in our brain, but not too much. And um, if you have a high sugar diet, high artificial sweetener diet, you're going to produce excitotoxicity. And um, mm. that's, that's a, a process where the brain's overexcited and it's so overexcited that over time we start to, uh, we start to kill neurons. We start to create an inflammatory uh, cascade that we don't want that gets out of control. We, we trigger what's called, um, you know, glial cell activation and that glial cell activation is problematic and on down the line. So you start to see issues sleeping. And then later on in life, we see this connection between high sugar diets and, um, dementia cognitive decline and so that's that's the that's the scary part so it's like it's like i'm gonna have my burger and fries but i'm gonna get a diet coke yep to go right. with it right yep exactly very cool um so talk to me about some supplementation strategies that you find to be effective mm -hmm. for improving and, I, and there's a lot of different classifications of sleep disturbances right i mean in yep. my experience we we have uh you know patients that and, and clients that have a hard time going to sleep. They have a hard time staying asleep. They have a hard time waking up. They get up multiple times to urinate. Um, they find themselves sleepy despite, you know, adequate sleep duration. They find themselves sleepy throughout the day. How do you address some of these and what are some of your go-to supplement protocols? So um, the main thing that, that we look at in the brain and, and historically the way it's been looked at is that, um, well, let me take a step back. Sleep is, sleep is an active process, right? Our brains just don't crash at night and go to sleep because simply because they're tired. Sleep is a, pro which that was the theory, say, 60 or 70 years ago. The brain just gets tired, so it just needs to rest. No, sleep is an active process. So the thought was is that if we can um, help that active process along, we should be able to get people to sleep better. And that would be, so how can we facilitate inhibition uh, so that the brain can slow down. Um, historically, what they've used are um, drugs that affect uh, the neurotransmitter GABA. And mm. GABA is, uh, you know, a neurotransmitter that is inhibitory. So from a nutritional supplement standpoint, um, there's something that is very effective. Um, it's called Phenibute. And it uh, is essentially a, a GABA analog that crosses the blood-brain barrier. And it is very effective in relatively low doses. Um, for sleep. And that is something that people have used um, quite, quite effectively. Um, uh, people have used um, precursors of serotonin because serotonin was initially um, thought to be part of the sleep process. And then some research showed that it uh, was not necessarily directly related. And then later research kind of circled back to the first research. What it appears to be now that ser how serotonin works is that serotonin levels peak during the day. 
while we're awake, so not at night. Mm -hmm. So serotonin levels peak during the day, and with this peak, it is supposed to be preparing the brain for sleep later in the day. So you can use serotonin precursors like tryptophan or 5-HTP. Um, knowing that research, I have shifted to where I use those. I use those generally during the day, not right before bed. And I found that that's a, a little bit better of an adjunct. Um, if people have things like restless leg syndrome that's keeping them awake, um, you know, they feel like a, a need to move their legs, uh, one of the things that can be helpful is um, small doses of uh, L-DOPA from the herb mucunipurians. Yeah. Um, too much is an issue because that dopamine can keep you awake. Uh, but short term, that can work very, uh, in the small amounts, that can work uh, well. Um, also, iron. Um, if someone is low in iron and or ferritin, that is a place that um, can really help with restless leg syndrome. So that's something that should be tested because supplementing with iron or ferritin isn't a great idea if you don't really need it. Um, right. It's just something that can be problematic. And then lastly, people ask me all the time about melatonin. Um, yes. Melatonin is not really great at getting people to sleep. Um, it's not even really that great at keeping people asleep, at least from a study perspective. I have patients that swear by it. They love it. They take it. They, they really believe that it helps them quite a bit. So I don't take them, you know, if, they, if it's really something they need, I say keep doing it if that's something you, you want to keep doing. Um, where melatonin really shines is being able to shift the circadian rhythm. So if you say, geez, my time to sleep seems to be 12 to 8, but I really need it to be 10 to 6. Some melatonin can help shift that clock for you. Um, if you're somebody that needs to shift back and forth from night shift to day shift, melatonin has been shown to be very effective there. Melatonin has also been shown to be very effective for jet lag. Um, mm. So those yeah. are the kinds of things where it works. I haven't seen it work very well um, as a direct sleep aid. Yeah, that's good stuff with the melatonin i've I've observed the same stuff and found it to be very beneficial for you know shift workers for people that have been traveling and you know you go multiple time zones and you want to get yourself back into the the natural your your natural sleep cycle can be very beneficial there yeah. uh it, regarding the gaba there's a lot of supplements on the market that are gaba supplements but those aren't very effective because they don't cross the blood brain barriers. Yeah. So if you go to a, a, um, a health food store and you find a GABA product, um, it will say GABA, gamma amino butyric acid. It'll say it on the label. And it is in fact GABA. It doesn't cross the blood brain barrier in any kind of appreciable amount. So you'd have to take so much in order for it to work. It would really be dose prohibitive. You need to take, you know, like 40 capsules at a time. Um, and obviously nobody's going to be doing that. It, and if it does have an effect, then, I mean, this is kind of off on a tangent a little bit, but then you kind of have this leaky blood brain barrier, which we don't have time to talk about, but yes. it, it, that's not a great scenario either. So it, it really doesn't work. There are some things, um, when I started doing research into this a number of years ago, I, I was pretty sure that I wouldn't see much evidence that valerian hops or passion flower were that effective. Because um, I wasn't sure that that those would be able to have an effect centrally because of the blood-brain barrier, but they do seem to work. And and the theory is is that they work um, on the GABA system and they enhance that. Um, so it's an interesting. I, I use those as adjuncts um, as as an adjunct to a lot of other therapies. So that's that's another way. But the the preformed GABA is not going to work. You need something like fenibut. 
Right. So, so fenibut and some of those herbs, the valerian, the hops, the passion flower. Now would, would you get enough, uh, a dose from using a tea, some sort of organic herbal tea or something like that? Is that enough or would you find supplementation necessary? You probably have to supplement, uh, you know, um, everybody's going to be different and depending yeah. on, you know, what other, uh, therapeutic options you've implemented, say, say you've, really turned everything around in terms of the sleep hygiene. It was all terrible and now it's great. And you have a little cup of valerian tea that might be enough for you. But in general, I think you're going to have to supplement with it. Cool. That's great, man. Um, last question revolves around, uh, I guess just nutritional intervention and improving sleep and nutritional timing and improving sleep. What have you experienced there? Yeah, I think from a from a dietary standpoint, if we can get the processed stuff out of someone's diet, the stuff that we know really alters hormones, you know, the yeah. stuff that we know really alters neurotransmission, that's that's what we need to do. And so people have such processed diets and it it's not it's not a calorie thing. If I, you know, it's it's not I mean, calories matter to a degree, but it's really not about that piece of it. It's, it's the quality of what we're getting and the effect that it's going to have. You know, if, if we're getting lots of processed food, we're going to see changes in neurotransmission that are not optimal. We're going to see changes in insulin and cortisol and adrenaline and all of those things that are not optimal. Um, and then if we shift away from those things, not only are we getting better regulation of hormones and better neurotransmission, we're also getting phytonutrients that we weren't getting before. Yes. which are, are, are beneficial. And we see a reduction of inflammation, which is important when it comes to sleep. And, and so that's what I see as important. And in terms of timing, um, I'm not sure that there's a real, I mean, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, I, you know, I was kind of on the bandwagon of make sure you eat every two to three hours and that sort of thing. And, and I think that's still valuable for some people depending on their clinical situation. But there's some really cool information out there now regarding intermittent fasting. And yep. so I'm not sure the timing matters that much. Um, but I do think the quality does. What about more carbs later in the day because of serotonin? I know you said serotonin should be highest during the day, but um, we also know carbs help induce serotonin, which can be beneficial for sleep at night. Any, any, you know, you know, what I've done is that I've had people um, do a snack before bed. I have done that. So thank you for reminding me of that. Um, I'll, I'll do like, I want a blend though of kind of a, a carb with a, with a fat. So there's some slow metered um, yeah. blood sugar in there. Really what I'm using that for is not necessarily the serotonin piece, but usually some cortisol change that, you know, blood what sugar, cortisol. That blood sugar dropping down, the cortisol yeah. fires up. So then that they're awake. Um, so that's a piece that I guess from a timing perspective, so I've had some people where I believe the cortisol is the issue have a snack right before bed. Yeah, I'm, I'm really, I, sleep is so fascinating, such a crazy topic because there, and, and man, it's just, it goes along with everything else that we talk about in this field is people are so, you know, biochemically individual because Right, there's so many people that respond well when they do two or three hours without eating anything before bed, and and mm -hmm. will, you know, swear that that's the best thing to do. Then there's people we know that have blood sugar issues that benefit from having a small snack before bed, or even people that wake up with blood sugar, you know, issues and and having a snack. And so, yeah. it's really uh, an extremely complex and individualized process, but. But all of this information that you're sharing is incredibly helpful, and uh, I'm so appreciative. Uh, Dr. Vreeland, where can people find out more about you and your practice? 
Yeah, you can go. I have uh, my website at uh, www.vreelandclinic.com. And then on Facebook, it's The Vreeland Clinic. Uh, that's probably the best two places to find us. And uh, perfect. You know, we're, we're there. We're posting a lot. So, um, it, it, Is there one or two resources that you would recommend that people check out if they're interested in finding out more about the importance of sleep? You know, um, I don't have, you know, I think the, the best place, you know, if, if you can get great functional training, just in general, I think the Institute for Functional Medicine is great. Um, you know, I think those places are, are good places to go because it, it's, a, it's a comprehensive look. And sleep is one of those things that, you know, we just need a, a whole body approach because that's really what's going to work. And then what about, so obviously for clinicians, the Institute for Functional Medicine, but any resource for the lay population? What is a good sleep source for the lay population? You know, off the top of my head, I can't think yeah. of one. I mean, the there's um, you know the National Sleep Foundation has some some basic stuff on on there. It's mostly about sleep hygiene and that sort of thing. Cool. Um, but other than that, I can't think of a real great lay source. I mean, because I think it's usually just very it's general, and I I mean I guess sometimes that's helpful, yeah. but uh, sometimes we just need more than just the general. Well, this podcast has been a great a great start. There you go. Thanks for the right to this podcast. Um, awesome, buddy. Well, I have all your contact information in the show notes below. So make sure you guys head over, check out Dr. Vreeland's website and all the cool things that he's up to. He's obviously a brilliant mind in the field. And so, Doc, thank you so much for your time and energy and passion. I'm, I'm so appreciative to have had the opportunity to speak to you and share your wisdom with my audience. And we'll have to do it again soon. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. All right, buddy. Take care. Did you love this episode of the Smart Nutrition Made Simple show? Then head on over to iTunes, subscribe, and leave a positive rating and review. And more importantly, share this with other men that you know are dedicated to leveling up in every area of their life by learning how to live healthier, more energetic, and productive lives so that they can optimize their health for their family and future. Thank you for listening. And if you want to find out more about how you can work directly with Ben, then just head on over to www.bslnutrition.com forward slash level up.